Hi, this is Paul. Some of you have been asking me, where's the commentary on the Exodus seminar? Didn't Jordan Peterson on Twitter give you free hand to go through the and do commenting on the second on the on the seminar as you see fit? You you can find it on a tweet right there. But I that was December 10. I was a little bit leery and I had made a video on um, Jordan Peterson's Exodus seminar and the rewilding of Christianity. And a couple of weeks ago, I woke up in the morning and opened up my YouTube account and bang, I had a copyright strike on that video. And there was a place to like write to Bent Key Productions and I did that and I didn't hear from them. And then I went back to a woman that I'd talked with before any of this and they, they had basically said, you can use 10 minutes per Exodus seminar to make commentary with on your channel. And I had used maybe, I don't know, three or four minutes total in that video. So I wrote back to her. I said, hey, what gives with this? And I noted this tweet and all of this. And so she apologized and said that Daily Wire would take away the copyright strike, et cetera, et cetera. That still hasn't happened. I guess there's a third party. You know, that's often the way these things go. There's a third party in the middle that's working on this. So any day now, hopefully that copyright strike will be withdrawn from my account. And at that point, I'll probably start, you know, using my 10 minutes per episode to, to, um, to, to talk about. And I'll basically pick uh, different 10 minutes that are uh, depending on, you know, what I think is most salient. But as I've been waiting for that, one of the things that I decided to do was take a look at, well, wait a minute, Jordan had been posting, Jordan or Michaela or someone has been posting little clips from the series, and some of those clips fairly long um, from each of the each of the lessons. And so what I did on my blog, I have this, um, some of you might know I have this leadingchurch.com. It's a blog that I've had for a lot of years, and I just kind of use it as a file cabinet mostly or just place to jot stuff down and keep on the web. And so what I did there was I sort of archived all of the examples on both the Jordan Peterson main channel and the Jordan Peterson clip channel of outtakes from the Exodus. And I should be able to use these without incurring any uh, copyright strikes or anything like that. And so I, I let the representative from Daily Wire that I've been emailing back and forth with let her know that, hey, I'm going to use this. So if I have 10 minutes plus the 10 minutes or so, that's 20 minutes. You know, it's not me sitting and watching the whole thing with you, but it's, uh, hey, fair enough. It's behind the paywall. I can I can work with that. So we'll, um, so I'm going to go with that. So I thought maybe today I would jump in and start using, using this first one. Now this comes when from... When... This comes from the first, uh, the first episode, which has been out a while. All the episodes are out, and in fact, they probably just finished filming or are wrapping up filming the second half of Exodus. Which I'm okay. Back to how many conversations that we've been having, all the thinky talky stuff. Part of the reason narrative for us is so impactful is because narrative better, better than any other verbal form incorporates John Verveke's four P's, okay? Narrative has that power. And I think for that reason, narrative is so powerful. There's some real real interesting quotes in uh, Paul Johnson's History of the Jews where he talks about narrative, and maybe I'll bring them into one of these videos. But 
in this segment, um, they're going to talk about the Hebrew midwives. Um, now, that's a that's a really key part of the first Exodus uh, seminar commentary. As if you watch through the Exodus seminar, you'll notice that at certain points they sort of stop and pause, and then you can't give you can't give complete attention to every portion from Exodus because there's just too much book there. And anybody who's familiar with biblical commentaries knows that at some point you, you got to stop talking. So this is the section about the Hebrew midwives. It's important to note, maybe I'll just do a little bit of reading to bring up to speed. What I've got in front of you is the Hebrew text um, the Lexham English Bible, which is a, it's kind of a neat little translation that the Logos Bible study software uses. Um, it's, it's, it's not a bad little translation. Um, the 1917, so an early 20th century Jewish translation of the text, the Revised Standard Version, which is a, I, I could actually just uh, put the, might put the King James in there. I like the Revised Standard Version. It's a version I grew up in. It's it's sort of an updating in the mid twentieth century updating of the King James uh, tradition of of translation. Tanakh, which is the nineteen eighty five translation, Jewish translation of the text, the NIV, which is a translation that sort of was shepherded and begun by the Christian Reformed Church and is very popular in the American scene. Anybody who watches my adult Sunday school class will be familiar with a lot of my thoughts about at least um, these major translations. And then the New Living Translation is not a translation. It's a paraphrase. A lot of evangelicals like it. It's it's sort of pre-chewed, pre-interpreted evangelical translations. I don't know if I'll keep this particular mixed with my Bible study software. I could pretty much add any translations that I currently own in my package and use them here. The story begins with, with just a little... Um, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt, who came into Egypt with Jacob. Every man came with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, all of the souls. And this is where, um, you know, all of those descendants, all of the souls. Uh, this is when you, when you line up translations next to each other, you, you can really see it's kind of what's going on in in the minds of the people. Another, you know, another translation that I can bring in here is Robert Alters. He's a Jewish scholar taught for years at um, at Berkeley. He has a a first by a five books of Moses, a translation and commentary, which is which is often quite fun to read. And all these people springing from the loins of Jacob were seventy people, but Joseph was in Egypt. And Joseph died and all of his brothers with him and all the generations and the sons of Israel were fruitful and swarmed and multiplied and grew very vast and the land was filled with them. I, I remember, um, I remember in, in seminary, one of my professors talking about, let's see, what, what did they, um, ba, ba, ba. And the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied. Now that's that's really key because that's a quote from the beginning of Genesis, the cultural mandate: um, be fruitful and multiply and fulfill the earth. And so, although already in Exodus one verse seven, the Israelites are being fruitful and multiplied, 
And, and this is interesting because they have dropped out of conscious relationship with God, but they are, in a sense, still fulfilling the mandate that they were given, even if they didn't know it. Um, let's see. But their descendants, the Israelites, had children and grandchildren. In fact, they multiplied so greatly that they became extremely powerful and filled the land. That's the New Living Translation, uh, the RSV um, and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And they talked about this in, in the first part of the series. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know, Jake, know Joseph. He said to his people, look, the people of Israel are greater and more numerous than us. Now, now again, that's a, that's a mark of both God's providential working through them and also a mark of they are doing what was commanded in the beginning of Genesis, even if they don't know what they're doing. Come, we must deal with them shrewdly. We must deal shrewdly with them, lest they become many. And when war happens, they will join our enemies and will fight against us and go up from the land. And they appointed commanders of forced labor over them in order to oppress them with forced labor. And they built storage cities for Pharaoh, Python, and Ramses. And he oppressed them. So they became many, and so they spread out. And the Egyptians were afraid because of the presence of the Israelites. And the Egyptians ruthlessly compelled the Israelites to work, and they made their lives bitter with hard work with mortar and bricks and with all sorts of work in the field, with all of their work in which they ruthlessly enslaved them. JPS 1917. And they made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all manner of service in the field in all of their service wherein they made them serve with rigor. And you see rigor passes in um, 19, the RSV, mid-20th century. It's a lot of fun lining up translations and looking at the word choice because there's two moving targets, of course. The language is a moving target. Um, Tanakh, 1985, the various labors that they made them perform ruthlessly, they made them bitter, uh, they made life bitter for them with harsh labor at mortar and bricks and with all sorts of tasks in the field. NIV, they made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Let's see what uh, the good old altar has to say. Now we got to the midwives already. Uh, ba -ba -ba. And they abused them. Alter's, Alter's introduction is, is really quite fun. As they abused them, so did they multiply like a force of nature. Compare verse 7. The Israelites respond to oppression by redoubling their procreative surge. Compare Rashi. The divine spirit says, so you say, let, lest they multiply. I say, so did they multiply. You can get a lot of good stuff out of, out of Alter. As they abused them, so did they multiply, and so did they spread. And they came to loathe the Israelites. And the Egyptians put the Israelites to work at crushing labor. The, is, the Hebrew is an adverbial form derived from a root that means to break into pieces, to pulverize. And they made their lives bitter with hard work, with mortar and bricks and every field. 
Um, not surprised there's a footnote there. Work, work, work. Following a prevalent stylistic practice of Hebrew narrative, the writer underscores his main topic, the harshness of slavery by repeating the central thematic keyword. Indeed, the Hebrew literally says they're crushing work that they worked. But in English, that cognate accusative form sounds awkward, except for a limited number of idioms like sing a song. You, you'll find that um, in the Sermon on the Mount where, where Jesus says, don't, um, don't heap your heaps. <laughs> it's the same word that Jesus, that Jesus uses. And the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, a little footnote here from Alter, Hebrew is um, regularly the designation of Israelites from a foreign perspective. The Hebrew midwives, one of whom was called Sifra and the other was called Pua, was named Pua. Birthstool literally means double stones. Although there's some debate about the meaning of the term, there is persuasive ground to understand it as a double stone or a brick structure that childbearing women gripped as they kneeled standard position to give birth. There's an Egypt magical papyrus that announces it as recited over the two bricks of birthing. Oh, interesting. And and again, commentaries, you can go to you can go to logos and you know, whoops, that's now on a different screen. Let me pull it over here. Um, you can pull up all sorts of fun little facts about the text. Um, there's way more information about the Bible than probably have time to pursue. Let's see who it's. Um, when you help the... <laughs> uh, let's see if anybody brings the stones in there or the bricks now. And the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name one was Sifra and the other was Pua, and he said, when you help the Hebrews give birth, you will look upon the pairs of testicles. If he is a son, <laughs> apparently it's assigned at birth. Um, if he is a son, you will put him to death. If she is a daughter, you will let her live. 1970 JPS. When ye do the office of midwife to the Hebrew women, ye shall look upon the birth stool. If it be a son, they shall... Oh, that's interesting. I wonder if L, the LEB is going a different way from altar. Because uh, the LEB and the, the JPS both have birth stool, delivery stool. Um, yeah, very interesting. But the midwives feared the Lord, feared God. It'd be kind of fun to bring in the Septuagint, but how many columns do I really want here? This always just sends me down a lot of rabbit trails. Well, let's let's jump in where they start. You do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them upon the birthing stools. If it be a son, then you shall kill him. And that's that instrumental usage that you were talking about before. Th there is a huge issue here. The Hebrew is completely indeterminative whether the midwives were Hebrews or not. Uh, and I'm not going to throw out Hebrew often. It, it's, I, I feel very self-conscious at all. But uh, for those who know Hebrew, uh, they will know what I'm talking about. It can be the Hebrew midwives or the midwives of the Hebrews. There is no possible way based on those two words to know which it is. I am convinced, and Jewish tradition doesn't agree with me, 
I mean post-biblical Jewish tradition. The Torah, I think, does agree with me, but Selavi. Uh, I don't. I believe they were they were Egyptian. I do not believe he would have ordered he, Hebrew midwives to murder every Hebrew boy. Do you think there's now, now? What's interesting to me about this observation is not just to get into the question of well, does this uh, what what's the ethnicity of the midwives? Now, again, as I've been talking about the history of interpretation and in modernity. The focus tends to be with us on some uh, on a certain amount of correspondence. What what all of their wrestling with this question is because the genitive is ambiguous. All of the wrestling with this question has to do well. What are the what is the meaning of how 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 is the meaning different if they are Hebrews and if they are Egyptian? And Jonathan Peugeot, a little bit later, I think it's actually after the clip, will sort of weigh in there with a funny thing. And the funniest thing is when <laughs> when Peterson sort of turns to him quietly and says, no wonder you get yourself into so much trouble uh, when, when Peugeot makes the comment about um, that what the Egyptians are trying to do to the men. There's a, do you think there's a purposeful ambiguity there to leave it up to yeah, question? Th uh, that's beautiful. It may well be. That's right. Well, it certainly is. The Hebrew is is ambiguous. That is correct. Because, I mean, if a tyranny gets corrupt enough, then people turn against themselves. That, that okay. Now, a big part of my fascination with this entire movement, why I pay so much attention to all of, to Jordan Peterson, especially the biblical series, is the impact that this series has on people and how they approach the Bible. Now notice what what Jordan is doing because suddenly tyranny. Okay. Is this a political valence? Mm, social valence. Um, there's a fair amount of, of political valence in this, but it's not, you know, does this text tell us we should vote for Republicans or Democrats or whatever parties are in flux in in Canada? No, it's it's they're looking for patterns, and that's why I was talking about sort of this concordance, this correspondence. We're going to get lessons about tyranny from the Bible. Now, within many churches, many people reading this text, especially as individuals in an individual frame, they might think, well, um, what happens sort of natural in narratives is, is men and women will sort of imagine themselves into the story and ask themselves questions like, if I were one of these mid midwives, what would I do? Would I have the courage to stand up to Pharaoh? Or would I buckle under the tyranny? I mean, it's it's this kind of imaginative. It's really, in some ways, related to Verveke's use of the imaginal, because we we look into the Bible and we sort of have this little test. A little bit later, Peterson's going to talk about ideals. So we read these characters and we ask ourselves, and women, you know, tend, representations tend to happen. Women will ask themselves, well, if I was a midwife, midwife to the Hebrews, would I stand up and stand up to Pharaoh? 
That's right. H however, certainly... Leave it up to yeah, question? Th uh, that's beautiful. It may well be. That's right. Well, it certainly is. Uh, the now, the reason a, a purposeful ambiguity could be in there, again, is because is to allow the reader to sort of do this mental imagination to figure out where do I interact and intersect with this text? Boy, I can already see that. Yeah. I've been through a minute and 17 seconds. So, yeah, there's there's no there's no danger of me. Um, the Hebrew is is ambiguous. That is correct. Because I mean, if a tyranny gets corrupt enough, then people turn against themselves. That, that's right. H however, just on, on logical grounds, when he gets angry at them for not doing it, it would be odd mm. he'd get angry at Hebrews for not killing Hebrews. But my biggest proof you're coming to, where they it says, and and you know that's a strong point that. But but again. The, the modernist, we, this, is, this is where, even though I, I sort of segment these biases and impulses, if you're reading the story as story, you sort of have to descend into it because you can, by virtue of combinatorial explosiveness with respect to a text like this, you, you can't, there, there's many different aspects that will appear to you from the narrative, from the text that you will have questions about. And when you read the history of interpretation or the history of discussions of these texts, you'll find all sorts of different questions coming in from all sorts of different angles. That they feared God and didn't listen to Pharaoh. Again, it's one of my favorite lines in the whole Bible. You either fear humans or you fear God. Mm -hmm. Fear God is the root. Okay. A huge part of what's been happening in the Jordan Peterson movement is when people hear this word God, they're going to have imaginations. And some people are going to think a super thing in the sky. Some people are going to have something a little bit more diffused. I've, you know, I've been tweeting a little bit the last couple of days and there's a, a Twitter account out there that you know, in a, in a very nice way, has, has sort of wanted to kind of, you know, gently correct me by saying, oh, yeah, but there is no God, so therefore, and then goes into all these these different interpretations. Maybe I should just play this and let it run, because this is exactly the point that they get into. Root of freedom of wisdom, yeah. and wisdom. And it's one of my favorite lines in the whole Bible. You either fear humans or you fear God. Mm -hmm. Fear God is the root of freedom of wisdom, yeah. and wisdom. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, uh, the word for God is not... No, yeah, I said I was going to let it run, and then I don't. Now, why would he say it's the root of freedom? Now, remember, Jordan Peterson said tyranny. So the root of freedom would be, in a kind of Jeffersonian sense, a way of resisting tyranny. To, to, free, to fear God means that there is a judge above the earthly judges that can take your life. Um, Jesus, in fact, will will make a comment about this and say, "Don't don't fear the ones who can merely take your life. Uh, fear the ones that can take your soul." Not Jehovah or Yahweh, it's Elohim. So when Jews fear God, it's generally fear Yahweh, and in this case, it's fear Elohim, the universal word for God. And I am convinced that they are Egyptians. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's a I think that's a good argument. I'm thinking that I need to rearrange my my space here so that I can have hmm, 
I can have more, more, more pictures on the screen so we can have the text together with the, um, the segment here. Hang on. All right, let's play around with this a little bit. Mm -hmm. Douglas, do you have any sense of what it means in this passage and more broadly that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom and, and an appropriate, let's say, precondition for freedom? Why, why do you... See, again, um, this isn't a critique, but it's different from church. And, and the big part of the freshness of Peterson's perspective in this as is true of, of many others who have gone into this, um, why can't I think of his, his name right there now, the other, um, Northrop Fry, uh, many others who have, who have sort of gone into this. You won't find in, in many biblical commentaries a treatment of the question of the Hebrew midwife standing up to Pharaoh as something dealing with tyranny. Do you think it's conceptualized as as fear well i think there's uh, a proper fear that in this case i think is linked to transcendence so um there's the the fear of the the tyrant which is normal and natural um and which we are all subject to but there should be a greater fear I, the fear of the transcendent mm -hmm. of violating it, uh, violating that. Right, yes. right, right. Um, and of course, this is why the see. Now it's it's interesting because when Dennis Prager talked about fear of God, immediately people's minds go to let's say a super thing in the sky, an agent. Now the transcendent that that tends to be a much less personal form. It's really more God number one versus God number two, really, and sort of how they're laying this out. The uh, postmodern attack uh, on traditional Western culture is so dangerous. I mean, of course, it goes back to the very origins of, of Western culture with the sophists. But the idea that uh, there is no such thing as a, an objective moral order, mm -hmm. and there certainly is no... Now, I don't know if you caught what he said there. Now, I've listened to this five or six times. And when he mentioned the sophists, that, that's pretty important because, of course, you meet the sophists in these Plato dialogues. And the sophists are are, are in some ways, and, and I expect we'll get to this in Verveke's treatment of Socrates, the sophists are in some ways the ultimate example of expedience. And the big narrative here is that transcendence weighs against expedience. And this is where you get Jordan Peterson's do what's meaningful, not what's expedient. No transcendent basis for that. Um, that would make this whole narrative unintelligible. It also makes the tyrant the final arbiter in some real sense, right? And, and, you know, people have asked me. So, so you've got, now he's about to say something you know, pretty interesting. This is, this is where we get into this question of, how should we talk about it? The sort of subliminal presuppositions of atheism. Douglas Murray, in his conversation with Tom Holland and Douglas Murray was with, um, oh, that's right, the, um, the, the, the design guy on... Heritage Foundation. I could pull it up easier than I can remember all of their names. 
Douglas Murray often likes to point out what did the, what did the Nazis and the communists have in common that nobody was watching. And, and so right here, we're sort of God number one, God number two. Uh, P Prager really brings in very sort of the traditional Christian, um, full agent theist, you know, without a God. And, and of course, Os Guinness will jump into these things very quickly. The other position, well, now suddenly the urbane university, I'm not saying anything against um against that comment but it's and because i think part of the importance of what peterson has done is help recapture the um the agentic quality of the arena i'll say it that way and i'm always embarrassed by this but people have commented on my courage for speaking up so to speak and i think you don't actually understand the situation i'm not courageous in my speaking up. I'm more afraid of the alternative. And part of the reason for that was that when I was a clinician and I spent thousands, tens of thousands of hours dealing with people's serious problems, one of the things I learned was, and I really learned this, was that you don't get away with anything. And so you might think you can bend the fabric of reality and that you can treat people instrumentally and that you can bow to the tyrant without and violate your conscience without cost, but that is just not the case. The the you will pay the piper and, and then into the commercial so we got uh four and a half minutes the let's back it up to him oh that's good that's a good shot take a screenshot of that would be good for the thumbnail let's listen to the way he phrased that again the, to the you might and i really learned this was that for that was that when i was a clinician and i spent thousands, tens of thousands of hours dealing with people's serious problems one of the things i learned was and i really learned this was that you don't get away with anything. And so you might think you can bend the fabric of reality and that you can treat people instrumentally and that you... Notice fabric of reality. Um, again, I'm paying a lot of... What's salient to me in here is sort of the um, the personal versus impersonal. And and you'll hear the, the individuals who are known in the public sphere for their, for their theism especially Guinness and Prager, sort of the, 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 boomer, the boomer cold warriors, Dennis and Prager in this mix. They'll, they'll usually lean in with the overtly theistic, religious, personal language. Peterson is deeply God number one-ish in there. And Headley, you know, these things always take a minute or two to bubble up. I believe that's his name. The man with the voice. Um Headley, he, you know, he's he's working in a he's working in an academic sense, and and a big part of what happened in the academic sense was you have to stop talking about God as agent, stop talking about God as person, stop talking about God as now. If you want an interesting conversation on on person, listen to Verveke and and. Jordan Daniel Wood that was on Grail Country not too long ago. I made a few little comments about that. I haven't done much with it on the on the channel yet, but right here. And so Peterson basically sees morality as, and we're going to talk a lot more about morality as we go through here, because one of the deep questions underway in our culture is this wrestling with with soft with sophism. Um, because the sophists, in in a sense, in saying everything is expedience, 
And, and so in that way, Headley sort of pointed to the postmodernist because in some ways you can draw a line between the sophists and the postmodernists because everything is expedience. But the problem, of course, the postmodernists will have with that is that once everything is expedience, then nothing is immoral. And as C.S. Lewis pointed out again and again and again, you can find this clearly in his book like um, The Abolition of Man. Once you give into this idea that everything is expedience, then you got to live by it. And as Lewis pointed out in The Abolition of Man, nobody ever wants to live by it. Because suddenly they'll want to say everything is expedience and then they'll stand up on their soapbox and decry racism or sexism or injustice or any of these things. And you can rightly say, now, wait a minute, aren't all of those also sort of power plays and cultural moves that you are getting to, that you are using to try to instill your own privilege and your own supremacy expediently over everyone else in the world? Once you play that card, you have no more cards to play in terms of making claims about good, bad, right, and wrong. You've you've already emptied the economy of all of those terms, so don't go smuggling them back in again, because if it's all just power or expedience, then, well, now we're just down to those with the power and the strength to get their way will have their way, and we're back sort of in Nietzschean territory where all of these games about morality are are just are just games. And, and power is finally all there is. Now I can see already that um, I would want to go I would want to go a little bit further into this. but but this question, you know they sort of entered through the front door of tyranny and the political, but this question about mm, morality, what is our foundation of morality? Now again, if you if you start CS. Lewis's, the um, mere Christianity, that's where Lewis begins the book. Because for Lewis, that's a stubborn problem if you're a sophist or a postmodernist, that you really, or, or some of the interlocutors, some of the reductive materialists that Lewis was debating and engaging with in the middle of the 20th century, because you can read this again in his book, Miracles. If it's if it's all just the, the whole show, then there is no good, bad, right, or wrong. There might be good, bad, or right, or wrong. You can listen to Rationality Rules say this. Might be good, bad, right, or wrong with respect to me, but then it's just personal preference. And what the midwife, the midwives to the Hebrews, regardless of their nationality, recognized was that if, if in fact there is a higher court, there is a more transcendent court, then suddenly you have to deal with that. Now, part of what happens if you begin to disassemble a religious worldview and say, oh, I think there, I think there is moral realism, but then you disassemble, let's say, an afterlife, is you bump into all sorts of issues that were clearly around in the development of the Hebrew Bible. Because if you go back into the Hebrew Bible, you can you can find oh, I don't know if I can I need an I need another scene in my OBS. So so one of the things you discover in well you have the Hebrew Sheol, which is something comparable to Hades. And and then you have the, the naughty question of, okay, now the, the Israelites are under the persecution of the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans. What happens to, what, what, what would be the motivation for the Hebrew 
that stands up to the tyrant and loses their life. In other words, can you lose the fight in the world and does it still make sense to fight that fight? Now, I think early in the canon, you have much more a sense that ancestors live on through their progeny, through their descendants. As you get into especially the book of Daniel, you much more have the sense that, well, then, then suddenly you, you wind up with a resurrection. And, and those, who were, um, those who were lived life well are rewarded in the next life. And, and, you know, sometimes in my sermon series, if you follow that, I'll sometimes call that escape religion. And escape isn't probably the best word. And as I continue to mull over these things and use them, I'll probably alter the language a bit. But, but it's, it's very much the idea of an afterlife. Now, once the afterlife has sort of been exiled, how does morality work? And, and you have all sorts of attempts in the modern frame to make it work. And, and usually they're sort of based on pride or uh, the legacy of history or something like that. And well, I think I got to see if I can do something in a second. And I think this is part of the reason why once you sort of lose the fully embodied, embodied narratives, you begin to lose, well, you begin again to, to give credence to Douglas Murray's observation that he quotes from someone else that what did the Nazis and the communists have in common, even though they sit at both sides of the spectrum, is they both believe no one was watching. In other words, there's going to be afterlife judgment and consequences. And this, this is something that also tends to undermine uh, universalist universalist narratives that, well, if, if whatever you do in this world is sort of sandboxed morally, that once you step out of this world, it's all sort of forgotten or erased. Miroslav Wolf deals with that in his book, Exclusion and Embrace. You deal with all these naughty problems. Well, I don't know how I feel about this video yet. Um, this was rather a small clip. Um, I've already used up five minutes of my 10 minutes of, of episode one. Uh, I've got a couple more clips that I can talk about. And then maybe when I finish those, I'll, I'll find... Because there are a couple of places in episode one that I really wanted to treat. Um, so, and I don't think they're in the clips. So anyway, as I, as I work through this, you'll see what I make. So leave a comment. Let me know what you think.